Welcome to What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean, Code Pink's weekly YouTube program of hot news out of the region. In partnership with Friends of Latin America, Massachusetts Peace Action, and Task Force on the Americas, we broadcast every Wednesday. Today we're coming to you on Thursday, um, generally Wednesdays, but always 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Eastern on Code Pink's YouTube channel. We can now also be found on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Today's episode, Biden's Summit Fizzles Out. I'm joined uh, by my Code Pink Latin America team uh, teammate and uh, Leonardo Flores, who is our Latin America policy expert, and he is our co-host, guest, and friend of honor today. Welcome, Leo. <laughs> oh, thanks so much, Terry. It really is an honor to be here because you've had a lot of high-profile guests over the last couple of weeks, so. I think I might be the lowest profile one. No, not at all. And, and most important, and most important were teammates and friends. So it's yeah, always true. it's always great to be in conversation with you. So absolutely. So for our audience, um, we're gonna talk about a lot of things today, and um, but all with a common thread. So um, we're gonna talk to you about a series of events that have been unraveling since early May here in the hemisphere of the Americas in advance of US President Joe Biden's Summit of the Americas, which is scheduled to take place in Los Angeles, California, June 6 through 10. So let me just introduce some of these events that have unraveled. We've seen the publication of Trump's Secretary of Defense, Mark T. Esper, the publication of his book, a Sacred Oath, Memories of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times. That was published on May 10. Also on May 10, the president of Mexico announced he would not attend Biden's summit. Um, and he said at a press conference Tuesday morning, May 10th, that if they are not all there, I will not go. And of course, he was referring to the exclusion of Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Um, the President of the United States had not invited those three countries uh, to his summit. So this, I think, and it's also really important for us to couch this as a protest and not, not necessarily a boycott, although that may be coming. What also has happened is the appearance of easing US sanctions policy against Cuba and Venezuela. And then uh, on May 18, 23 visas were denied to a Cuban civilian delegation that was hoping to attend the Alternative People's Summit in Los Angeles. Also on the 18th, here in Mexico City, a US Summit of the Americas delegation led by Christopher Dodd met with the Mexican government with no results Simultaneously in the background of all of this happening here in the Americas is the surrender of Ukrainian troops and the Azov stall in Ukraine. So Leo, we've got a lot of, of things in this soup in the Americas right now. So maybe um, let's start uh, with Esper's book and the irony of some of the disclosures in that book, specifically the disclosures he makes about US regime change in Venezuela and how ironic that is, um, given the reasons why Biden has excluded Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela to his summit. Yeah, I mean, there are some really scary things in, in Esper's account. And I think the first thing that to keep in mind is that Esper kind of portrays himself as the guy who doesn't want war. So here we have, the most dovish, for lack of a better word, 
person in the administration who happens to be the defense secretary, uh, which is a little insane. But what he recounts is that it was the National Security Council that, was been that had been pushing for a military option in Venezuela throughout 2019 and 2020 uh, until, he until he was fired, basically. And the key person being uh, Mauricio Claver Caron, who's, who was the senior director for Western Hemisphere Affairs of the NSC, the National Security Council. This guy is now the president of the Inter-American Development Bank. And yet what Esper recounts is that he was basically in on, uh, potentially in on the plot to, to plan and finance Operation Gideon. And Operation Gideon was this kind of mercenary invasion that happened in May uh, 2020, I think it was May 5th, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And the plan there was to have, you know, there were two U.S. Marines that came in with a bunch of Venezuelan expat mercenaries, and they were going to infiltrate the country on speedboats and then go to Caracas and kidnap Maduro uh, or possibly kill Maduro. And, you know, when the news first came out that this thing was foiled, you saw a lot of skepticism in the media and they're like, oh, there's no way that this was real or that the US was involved in it or you know that these were just some like crazy guys if this happened at all. But now in, in hindsight, after we saw the president of Haiti, Jovenel Moise, murdered by mercenaries, US trained mercenaries, Colombians in this case, and, and in which you know we have uh, evidence that there were US actors involved in US people who had been agents for the US involved in the plant plotting and carrying out of Moise's murder. I mean, to me, it's really shocking that, that you know, there hasn't been more investigation into, into just how involved the U.S. was, was in, in terms of uh, uh, this plot to, to assassinate or kidnap President Maduro. And, you know, he recounts several conversations in the Oval Office. At one point, he asked Guaido if, you know, you know if, if Trump had asked Guaido, rather, if they wanted U.S. military assistance to overthrow the Maduro government. And he kind of demurred and kind of said yes, but didn't want to outright say it. Uh, and Esper quips- With body Trump language, yes. Exactly. <laughs> and Esper, Esper quits, quips in his book that really what Guaido and, and this Venezuelan opposition, these fascists, what they wanted was for the United States to fight to the last American in Venezuela, mm -hmm. which is kind of exactly kind of a parallel to, to what's going on in Ukraine, where the United States now wants to fight for the last Ukrainian against the Russians, right? So, so yeah, it, it's a scary book and, and really what, or scary uh, chapter because of what it um, reveals. And it also, you know, there are parts of this that are redacted because the, uh, I guess the Pentagon didn't want some of this stuff getting out, but it, he talks very clearly about how, you know, once these military options were not being considered as much, they had talked, switched to talking to le about less direct options like a, like cyber operations and covert operations. Uh, they even talked about attacking a Venezuelan port. And I bring this up because again, we saw a cyber attack on Venezuela's electric yeah. grid in 2019. Uh, we had uh, this US Marine named Matthew Heath. He was arrested outside of an oil refiner, refinery. I think this was September, 2020, if I'm not mistaken, arrested with you know surveillance equipment and grenade and explosives and weapons. So clearly there was something up and there's a lot to this when, you know, when the Venezuelan government says and time and time again that they foiled plots by the US, what we get from the corporate media is immediate skepticism that, oh, this can possibly be true. But now we have the defense secretary saying, oh yeah, there were all sorts of shady things going on in Venezuela at the time. What's so ironic to me is that he uses it to discredit the, the, the then president of the United States 
versus really just framing it, just coming clean that this is U.S. foreign policy and this is how it's implemented. And it's really... Yeah. Absolutely. And one of the other things he talks about is, you know, he decries the militarization of foreign policy and how during the Trump administration, the first instinct was always to use the military as basically using the military as first response rather than as a last response and criticizing Trump, the Trump administration, and the Trump team again and again for doing this. And at one point, I, I mean, you, know, you talked about Mexico last week and too bad this book didn't come out in time for last week's show because he says that Trump wanted to bomb Mexican or drug labs in Mexico with missiles. And then when he was told that this would be an act of war, that it would damage the relationship with Mexico, that it would damage US global standing, then Trump kind of ponders it and he says, well, how do, how do they won't know it's us. We'll just send a couple of Patriot <laughs> missiles and, and we won't tell them it was us and nobody will know. They just say made in the USA on them. Exactly. So so this is kind of a, the dangerous level of discourse that we had going on at the uh, at the White House. And, and while I'm always very critical of, of the Biden administration's approach to Venezuela, where you know he's maintained these deadly sanctions, I think that is kind of one of the key differences, right? I don't think these, um, uh, these military options are discussed as much as they were during the Trump administration, uh, which is a small mercy, I suppose. You know, there's, there's something you mentioned um, earlier about in the meeting with the, uh, the White House staff and the former Secretary of De Defense and Guaido that the presumption was the body language, the innuendo in the conversation was that, and I think this was in response to the constant questioning, will, you know, if there's a U.S. invasion, if the U.S. funds an invasion to Venezuela, will the Venezuelans fight? And there was never a uh, any sort of direct answer to that. And the presumption was that the invasion would be fought to the last, as you said, the last US, the last US troop. And I, and I know you and I have talked about this for many years and when talking, when referring to the Venezuelan opposition, but not the entire Venezuelan opposition to be fair, but that for there to be a violent coup, a military invasion, any sort of incursion of that nature, you would see opposition, specifically the Guaido segment of the opposition, all of those people sitting in Miami and watching the incursion on CNN from Miami. They yeah. would not physically be there, nor would their sons or daughters or any of their family oh, be on yeah, the they, ground. They would absolutely, and, and it's really, for the most part, it's almost the same thing with the sanctions, right? The biggest cheerleaders yeah. of the sanctions on Venezuela yeah. are Venezuelans who don't live in Venezuela. Uh, they're living very cushy lives, either in Madrid or in Miami uh, or in New York. And they're saying, no, what we need is more and more sanctions. We need to collapse the Venezuelan government to strangle the people. And that's the only way out. And by out, they mean that's their only way to power. Uh, and, and of course, they're not the ones suffering. And by this point, you know, in, when, when they had that meeting where, where the military option was discussed, this was after the April 30th, 2019 coup attempt by Guaido where, you know, early in the morning, I got a phone call. I was like, oh, there's a coup attempt in Venezuela. And I looked online and I couldn't find anything. And then I called a friend there and it's like, no, there's nothing going on. Things, things are calm. And then finally we saw mm -hmm. on Twitter that, you know, it was kind of staged that they had taken over a highway or overpass in Caracas. And they were pretending like they had taken over this key airport uh, just to see what the response would be of the armed forces if they would join them. Obviously nobody joined them. 
And I think that's the, the key here, right? That I think the Venezuelan opposition, these the extremists have known all, known all along that there is absolutely no appetite within the opposition for a civil war because they don't have the people. They claim always to represent the majority of Venezuelans, that the, the majority of Venezuelans are always with them. But this is totally false. And I think eventually it kind of sank into the Trump administration too, that they these people don't have the majority, that there's no way that the you know, that they could be possibly be successful in overthrowing the government without direct uh, U.S. military aid or in, in intervention. So they would fight to the last U.S. <laughs> and it's always, yeah, it's always that demographic, isn't it? I mean, the wealthy people, that 1%. Um, so you mentioned that um, this demographic that lives outside of Venezuela is very pro-sanctions. They're not, you know, they have the, the finances. They, they're not suffering, um, at least certainly not the direct impact of sanctions, perhaps family and friends back home are, but they directly are not. How, um, let's talk about U.S. foreign policy sanctions as U.S. foreign policy sanctions. And I would also argue as, sanctions as hybrid warfare and then in that sense a form of military policy as well because it isn't just Venezuela uh, it's been Cuba for almost 70 years and Nicaragua on and off since the 1980s and now uh, definitively with the enactment of the Renaissance Act last September or just before the elections presidential elections in November of 2021 so in the lead up to this summit of the Americas in, uh, in September, weeks away now, we have seen, I guess, sort of, uh, what the appearance of relaxing sanctions blockade against Cuba and perhaps the lessening of sanctions uh, regarding the oil industry in Venezuela. Can we yeah, talk a little right. bit about that? Oh, absolutely. And before I go into that, I, in the first question you asked the second half, which was how, how does this, these revelations by Esper kind of affect the summit of the Americas or, mm. or, or how do they relate? Well, I mean, to me, you know, when we talk about the summit of the Americas and why the United States is looking to exclude uh, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, the answer they give is that these are countries that don't respect the inter-American charter, which is the, one of the founding uh, documents of the organization of the organization of American states and that they don't respect democracy and or human rights. But what Esper reveals is that they never cared about Venezuela's democracy. They don't care about Venezuela's human rights and that they're trying actively to overthrow the Venezuelan government, which is a direct violation of the Inter-American Charter. So this is just empty rhetoric that the United States is using for political reasons. And the political reason being that they need the votes and the money that comes from Florida. And they can't, they don't want to cede this policy position, or they don't want to cede Florida just to, to extreme right-wing Republicans. So they're trying to outcompete them in their efforts at regime change. But all of this is kind of backfiring. And then all of this, I mean, is this exclusion of these three countries from the Summit of the Americas is backfiring. Because as we've said, we've talked about on the program before, uh, you had, you know, countries in the region are saying, no, we're not going to attend, led by Mexican President Amno Andres Manuel López Obrador. I think the list includes now Honduras, Bolivia, many countries in CARICOM, and usually CARICOM sticks together. So if 
you know, I think there's going to be a consensus in CARICOM not to attend. And I would imagine that almost every country in the Caribbean is not going to attend. And by not going to attend, I mean not sending their president or prime minister. They might send a lesser diplomat to attend. Yeah. Um, and Guatemala, and, too. Guatemala? Guatemala. Yes. Yeah, Guatemala I, and Brazil, but for slightly different reasons. Guatemala yes. more for political reasons because the U.S. is uh, very critical of their new attorney general and the Guatemalan president wasn't having it. And Brazil, uh, I think Bolsonaro hasn't been clear on why he's not going to come, but it's probably related to the elections uh, in the campaign that he's got going on in his own country. And because I think he'll know that he'll face massive protests if whenever he goes out, outside the country. This is a guy who is despised uh, throughout the hemisphere. So in the face of this kind of uh, backlash from Latin America, from the Caribbean to uh, Biden's summit of the Americas, well, you know, he's had to start kind of a charm offensive. And, and now we're seeing, you know, a, a relaxation of, of sanctions on Cuba. And this has been welcomed by many of us who are in the Cuba solidarity movement, but welcomed with a caveat. And the caveat being, this is a very, very small step, right? Mm -hmm. So the, among the sanctions that, that the Biden administration recently eased were uh, about visas. Now the consulate in Havana, the U.S. consulate is going to be more staffed and they're start, going to start issuing visas. Limited number. So there are going to still be many Cubans who are going to be forced to travel outside of their country in order to get a visa to the U.S. Uh, there's going to be steps towards family reunification. Uh, they added flights to other, they, they lifted the ban on flights from the U.S. to cities other than Havana. They eased some restrictions on group travel. Um, they also ease some restrictions on e-commerce. E so maybe we'll see Zoom being unblocked in, in Cuba, for example. And they also eliminated the limit on remittances. Uh, again, that comes with an asterisk because they still maintain their sanctions on FinCEMEX, which is the Cuban agency mm. associated with receiving remittances. So unless that is lifted, what we're gonna see is, okay, there's no more limit on how much you can send, but you're gonna have all these kind of shady operators taking remittances and then taking a huge cut maybe 15, 20% of these remittances going toward, towards these private corporations, where as through FinCEMEX, it was a very tiny percentage of, of, of the remittances being captured. So, I mean, it is a positive step, but and it I don't think it's nearly gonna be enough in order to convince, for example, Mexican president Andres Manuel López Obrador to come to the summit. Um, and then similarly, we had a gesture of sorts towards Venezuela. Mm -hmm. It's unclear yet how to interpret this because you know the AP reported that the lifting of the sanctions I don't think there's been specific word or excuse me official word yet on what the actual lifting of the sanctions are but the AP reported that they're gonna the, the Biden administration is going to allow Chevron to renegotiate its license with Venezuela with the state-owned oil company but they're not going to allow them to resume operations. And they also lifted an individual sanction on a former oil executive who's presumably going to be handling the negotiations with Chevron. And that was this kind of a sticking point over the last several months was that Chevron had nobody to talk to because all of the oil executives had been sanctioned by the U.S. So talking to them would have been illegal under U.S. law, mm. which is obviously ludicrous, right? But one of the things that's a little odd about all of this is that the U.S. claims that this was done with the unitary platform's blessing, the unitary platform being mm. the latest iteration of the opposition coalition that features, you know, the most more extreme factions. Uh, and yet they came out with a statement long, not long afterwards saying that they had categorically denying that they had called for lifting of a personal sanction. So there's already infighting with the, the opposition because of this decision, right? 
And which then, is nothing new, the infighting among the opposition. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that, I mean, I, yeah, I, I should That's I should historical. That. I mean, it, it's so historical that to me, like, it's just obvious, but maybe for some of the listeners that they don't know that the Venezuelan opposition is just split into many, many, many different factions. And that's well, part Mike of the Pompeo problem. Well, Mike Pompeo eventually figured that out. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it took him <laughs> several years. But. And then, but on the Venezuelan side, we got a statement that was significantly more hopeful. We had Delcy Rodriguez, the, the vice mm. president of Venezuela, say she tweeted this out, and I'm kind of paraphrasing. Uh, she said, the Bolivarian government of Venezuela has verified and confirmed the news to the effect that the United States of America has authorized U.S. and European oil companies to negotiate and restart operations in Venezuela. So negotiate and restart, which would be a very significant change, a very important change in order for Venezuela to get its economy you know, back on track. It's already kind of on, tra on track, but certainly a lifting of oil sanctions would make the economy you know, you know, yeah. go, go off like a, a firecracker in terms of growth and, and would really help Venezuela you know, overcome its deficits in, in healthcare that has, been, has seen its healthcare system decimated by the sanctions. So, so it's curious that there's kind of this disconnect between what's been reported and what the Venezuelan government is saying. And I think maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle that, you know, sure. when it comes to the European oil companies, there's no sanction to lift per se, only the threat of secondary sanctions. Secondary sanctions being this idea that if a company outside the US does business with Venezuela, then the US can just take it upon themselves to issue sanctions on that company. But so maybe there's been kind of a, a back, you know, channel discussion where saying where the, that the Biden administration is now telling these companies that they're not going to be subject to secondary sanctions. That's, you know, educated speculation on my part, but we'll, we'll see what comes out of it. Well, do you think this for the for the European oil companies, is this a Biden uh, overture towards them for having destroyed European trade with Russia regarding energy? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think uh, what we're seeing is that Europe is going to have an energy crisis and that, you know, because of sanctions, say on Iran, and it's, it's, it's still difficult for them to acquire oil. And then Venezuela presents a very obvious opportunity for them to, to, to get new oil. Uh, I think that's why, in part, why the uh, Biden administration sent officials, sent representatives to Caracas for the first time in 20 plus years at the White House and sent someone to Caracas to, to negotiate with the government. Uh, because of this oil crisis, the gas prices um, going up so high, both in Europe and in the U.S., I don't know if you know the oil decisions are, are affecting. Excuse me, if if the Biden administration is considering lifting sanctions because of gas prices here at home, I think if that had been the case, it, they would have done it maybe a month or two ago, uh, be, mm -hmm. because you know these things take an affected. There's a kind of a lag time. So between now and the elections, I'm not sure how much oil Venezuela could contribute to uh, the U.S. necessarily, but certainly for Europe in the medium term, given the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, uh, access to Venezuelan oil would, would be tremendously helpful for them. But expensive to ship it sure. across the Atlantic. It's expensive. Yeah. To, I mean, yeah, it's certainly more expensive to ship it across the Atlantic than to just ship it straight to uh, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, which is where most Venezuelan oil used to go. Yeah. What, um, oh gosh, how much of this, um, you know, we're talking in terms of, you know, this change in policy regarding U uh, U.S. and Venezuelan oil, but how much of that, you know, we're couching it in terms of uh, consumer prices in the States and, and for Europe, but 
How much of this decision do you think is pressure from like Chevron and other US-based oil companies that they yeah. perhaps are losing market share, so global Chevron, market share? Yeah, absolutely. So Chevron is typically kind of when you see corporate reporting about this, they, they name Chevron as being the only oil company doing business in Venezuela or with, with oil fields in Venezuela. And that's not quite true. There's many others, uh, co companies that provide services related to oil, like for example, Halliburton. So there <laughs> definitely has been pressure uh, from Chevron, from some of these oil companies to lift the sanctions. Specifically, uh, you know, just before leaving office, actually, the, the Trump administration uh, let a license that Chevron had gotten, they let this license lapse, preventing Chevron from doing business in Venezuela. Before, they were still being able to do business, but instead of, you know, it, it was kind of an oil for debt type swap where instead of getting mm -hmm. paid directly with, with money uh, for this oil, what Venezuela was doing was paying down debt uh, that, it that it owes to Chevron. And this debt issue, and this is a slightly different issue, uh, there are many bondholders in the US who have Venezuelan bonds that haven't been able to be paid. And I know that they're also you know, putting a lot of pressure in on the administration to lift some of these sanctions so that they can get uh, their bonds uh, reimbursed. Yeah, kind of like what happened in, in Argentina a number of years ago with those vulture funds. Same, same scenario kind of setting itself up, possibly. Um, so we, with Cuba, with Venezuela, we're seeing perhaps lifting this relaxation, I don't even, I mean, of, of sanctions um, from the Biden administration towards Cuba and Venezuela, but still no formal invitation from the president of the United States to the president of Cuba or the president of Venezuela or the democratically elected president of, of Venezuela, the, the stand-up faux US puppet it will perhaps be invited. I don't, he still, he hasn't been invited yet, has he? There, there's he pressure from Florida. Yeah. Right. And you're referring to Juan Guaido, the, the so-called yeah. <laughs> interim president, the, the puppet. Uh, no, I, I mean, you have the extreme right wing, Marco Rubio, pressuring for Guaido to be invited. But if Guaido goes, then certainly there's going to be a massive boycott yeah, uh, yeah. from Latin America. So I think that's going to be a non-starter. But no, we haven't seen any indication that, that these leaders are going to be invited. Uh, my, you know, my theory is that the Biden administration might cave on Cuba uh, because, you know, the Obama administration had you know, have put so much emphasis on the renewed ties with Cuba and the restoring of relations. And because it's seen as though, you know, Cuba is the, the, somehow the least objectionable of these three countries and that the Biden administration might be able to weather the storm. So I think they might, they might try to divide and conquer in the sense of maybe they'll invite Cuba, but keep the bans on Venezuela and Nicaragua and then and forcing, you know, a difficult decision for some of these countries like Mexico and Honduras and Bolivia. Uh, but I'm not, I don't know that that's going to be the case because it's getting pretty late in the day in terms of, you know, the Summit of the Americas is supposed to start on June 6th in LA. And by, you know, mid-May already, we don't, they, these countries haven't received invitations. In fact, it's not even clear that any invitations have been sent out uh, because the, the president of Guatemala said that he hadn't been invited yet before he claimed that he was going to boycott it. So, so, they're, so they're not exactly on the ball at the State Department in terms of inviting countries. Wow. Yeah, they so, don't know what they're going to do. Yeah, absolutely. So everything's mm -hmm. pointing to yeah. to this 
Summit of the Americas being a total, uh, you know, a fracaso, a, a total <laughs> a blunder, a, a failure, right? Uh, oh. And that to me, yeah. you know, is really curious because what isn't going to be a failure, what has been drawing a lot of attention from social movements and organizations and people on the ground is the alternative summit, which is going to be yes. the people's summit for democracy going to be held in LA where the official summit is as well. And it's going to be held from June 8th through 10th. And where is that going to be for our audience? Um, yeah, that, that'll be in downtown LA. I don't know that the exact address has been published yet, but it's going to be an amazing program. Uh, people should go to uh, the website, which is peoplesummit2022.org. And, and once you're in there, you can see all of the organizations that have endorsed. It's a wide range of organizations that work on regional issues and, and also a lot of unions and tenant unions and uh, human rights organizations, workers organizations. It's going to be fantastic. And the program is looking excellent, too. You have a lot of panels and plenary discussions with some very important uh, thinkers from all around the hemisphere and, and from youth leaders and activists. So we're going to see a lot uh, of participation from the people themselves. But unfortunately, one of the things we won't see is Cubans, Cubans who mm -hmm. had been invited by the People's Summit, 23 Cubans specifically, including you know, one of the a designer of one of the vaccines, the COVID-19 vaccines, an Olympic a bronze medal winning wrestler, uh, a queer Christian student leader in, in Cuba. They're one of 23 Cubans who got their visas denied by the Biden administration to travel to the People's Summit. And my question is, what are they afraid of? What are they afraid that these Cubans are gonna say at the summit that's gonna be so damning to the Biden administration? And we know what it is that they're going to say. We're going to say they're going to say that the embargo is real and it is incredibly cruel. And on top of the embargo, there were another 243 sanctions imposed by the Trump administration, which the Biden administration has yet to lift. He lifted some of those um, earlier this week, but you know there's still at least 200 plus sanctions that he could lift tomorrow with the stroke of a pen, but he's refusing to do it. And so it's quite a shame that these the Cubans have not been invited. And in fact, we've started a petition at Code Pink uh, to press the, the State Department to rescind to you know go back on this decision and actually admit those visas. Uh, if you go to CodePink.org/slash/Cubansband, you will be able to sign our petition calling on 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 uh, Secretary of State Blinken to um, to grant these Let me visas. Tweet that out. I'll tweet that out as we talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things, so it's 23, it's 23 Cuban civilians, it was a civilian delegation, um, and those visas will not be issued, so we're, like you said, let's sign the petition and put some pressure on the U.S. State Department to issue those visas. One of the really important things that has not been discussed in this easing overture towards Cuba is uh, lifting the U.S. designation of state sponsor of terror, which is um, currently how yeah. Cuba is is designated in and, Washington. Yeah, and it's not it's a step that the Biden administration, I believe, early on they said they would consider it, but you know we're what a year and a half into his tenure, yeah. and we've heard nothing yet. And for folks who don't know the backstory, this is really a totally abs absurd designation. So Cuba was on the state sponsor of terror list for many years until I think it was 2014 under the Obama administration. Yes. 
that they were taken off the list because the Obama administration rightfully recognized that Cuba does not sponsor terrorism. And in fact, it's the other way around that Cuba has been a victim <laughs> of terrorism, victim of terrorism sponsored, if not abetted by, by the United States, in fact. But then the Trump administration came in and, and tried and applied its so-called maximum pressure policy against Cuba. And they put Cuba back on this list using the worst of possible excuses, right? So according to the United States, and this was actually at the petition of the Colombian government. So according to the US, Cuba is, was put back on the list because they are currently have former Colombian guerrillas in Cuba that they refused to extradite. Well, the truth is that Cuba was a host of peace talks between yeah. the Colombian government and the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. And as a, as a mediator in those peace talks, they signed this long agreement that included that the, the negotiators of the peace talks wouldn't be subject to deportation or to extradition, that that would basically, that Cuba would guarantee their safety. Well, now Colombia, because you, there was a change in government and because the new government led by Duque, Ivan Duque, who's you know doing terribly in terms of uh, approval rating in Colombia, he wanted those uh, uh, Colombians at former guerrillas back because he wanted to prosecute them. And the mm -hmm. Cubans said, no, we can't because this is our duty under international law to protect them because we accepted these negotiators uh, uh, and we promised them that we would you know, uh, guarantee their safety. So, so now because Cuba is obliging by its international commitments, it's being put on this list of state sponsors of terrorism. Oh, wow. And it's such an absurd designation that politicizes this list, which I don't know that it makes any sense to have such a list in the first place, if it's just gonna be used for political motives. Uh, but the fact that Cuba's on here is is totally egregious, and it's something that really the and that's the one actually that's one of the few things that Biden couldn't do right away with the stroke of the pen. He would have to order a study first, and so it would be like a three month gap. Oh. But he still hasn't done it, and it's not clear if he's ordered this study. So it's a, it's a real shame, you know. What it's showing is that the State Department and the Biden administration they're politicizing issues just like the Trump administration did. They're trying to divide Latin America and the Caribbean, just like the Trump administration mm -hmm. did. And while there may be differences in approach or in rhetoric, specifically, you know, contrasting what we hear with what we heard with Esper and with Trump talking about all options on the table, whereas the Biden administration seems to be kind of leaning away from that. In 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 effect, in real terms, there's very little difference between Trump and Biden administration when it comes to foreign policy in Latin America and the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. The window dressing's different. That's right. That's that's about it. Yeah, they've changed the curtains, and well, one pulled them all the way back. <laughs> yeah. So, so what else should we talk about? What's what else? I just want to remind uh, uh, the audience that I have uh, put into the Twitter to my Twitter feed the link to uh, the Code Pink um, alert about. Um, issuing the, the Cuban visas and also the peoplesummit22.org website. Um, I'll put those um, in YouTube too for those of you watching on that channel. The, um, I guess for me personally, Leo, it's really just in, in closing our conversation, kind of threading the needle as we watch you sitting in Washington DC and me here in, Washington, in um, Mexico City, how uh, so how so much is unfolding 
um, across the hemisphere of the Americas. And you and I have talked about this before and for our audience, I consistently bring this up. So I'm sorry if I'm boring you, but I do think it's really, really important. The words that the president of Mexico had to say July of last year on the 238th anniversary of Simón Bolívar's birth, and he's made specific comments about the need to uh, not necessarily completely abolish the OAS, but to revamp it so that there is an institution in the Americas reflective of all of the America, Americas. And then he, re, he uh, hosting the Venezuela Dialogue in August, and then the reconvening of Salak in September of 2021. And to me, what we're watching now unfold, really this arc of events since July of last year, and now seeing perhaps no invitations to the summit of the Americas, or if they do go out, you know, a very exclusive group of of countries being invited, which of course is antithetical to exactly what Anlo talked about last summer. There really is this arc that's been laid out. And specifically, I would say from here in Mexico City, led by the current president of Mexico. And his, you know, uh, rebuffment or his, you know, saying I'm not going to Los Angeles in, in June really is just one more event and to see so many countries follow his example, his leadership. I mean, we really, I think we really are seeing, you know, a whole series, not just this, this month of May, which has been filled with all kinds of stuff, but a real timeline of things uh, unfolding. And it's, in a way, it's, it's inspiring. It's hopeful, I guess, maybe that's the right yeah, absolutely. And it's really great that AMLO has taken these positions uh, during his tenure. I mean, the, the first very difficult decision, or uh, maybe not so difficult for AMLO because he's so principled, was, was uh, rejecting U.S. pressure to recognize Juan Guaido as president. He never did yeah. that. He always maintained his yeah. recognition of President Maduro. And that was a sign that, you know, Latin America uh, wasn't just going to fold to the pressure under the Trump administration or now the Biden administration. So he really right now is carrying the torch for regional integration in Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, given how uh, kind of weakened, say, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua have been from the sanctions, given the coup in Brazil, uh, the loss of Ecuador in, on the left. And now we're kind of seeing a resurgence of the so-called pink tide uh, with, you know, Bolivia, possibly um, uh, Colombia, the left winning in Colombia, the left winning in Brazil, the, the left one in Argentina, obviously. So, so we're seeing that we're going to see a resurgence, I think, of the of, of the pink tide and or, or excuse me, of this push towards greater regional integration and multi and this push for multipolarity yeah. in Latin America yeah. in the Caribbean. And it will be, you know, greatly expanded if the left wins in Colombia and Brazil. You, I mean, you already had Lula talking about uh, creating a uh, a currency for South America called the mm -hmm. Sud. And you have China talking about expanding the BRICS. So there are all these things going on kind of at a geopolitical level that point towards waning US influence, not just globally, but particularly in Latin America and the Caribbean. And that's, this is something that's kind of been happening since for 20 years now, for 20, 23 yeah, years, for I'd sure. say, since, since the first election of Hugo Chavez. Uh, and now we're seeing that 
it's not just dependent on one person or one country that there are going to be other leaders who are going to step up like Amno. Uh, and, you know, that's extremely welcome because it's only through that multipolarity, it's only through regional integration that, the, that Latin America and the Caribbean can hold fast against these pressures that come from the United States, whether it's economic or military diplomatic pressure. Uh, you know, if it's just against all against one country, with that country is likely going to fold with, I mean, with the exception of Cuba, that was doing mm -hmm. it alone for many, many decades. And, and, and but, you know, it, it's hard to withstand pressure. And when we saw a lot of pressure come on to specifically the Caribbean over the last couple of years in relation to Venezuela. And, and so AMLO gives everyone just some breathing room to make decisions based on their own foreign policy, based on their own sovereignty. Their own sovereignty, that's the key word. So let me kind of in, in closing, just throw out a, a thought <laughs> and, you know, and yeah, it's kind of a curveball, but not, but, but a nice one. <laughs> so you mentioned multipolarity and um, that was, and that was a big theme in the Salak summit, September of, of last year. It was a, a, came up regardless of the politics uh, of the country speaking, the, the multipolar, uh, integration of the hemisphere and the ability to, through SELAC, to perhaps um, interface with the rest of the world. So basically, you know, calling for a multilateral, at, at the very least, multilateral trade, uh, but also uh, politics. Do you think that um, that is perhaps the real uh, dip, end game or and through diplomatic measures um, is the is perhaps the real goal here in protesting this year's summit of the Americas is to kind of you know and I ask that because Amla was so specific in his 24 July discourse last summer his closing statements he's, he quoted George Washington actually uh, talking about the organization of America states and that perhaps it's you know no longer effective and it needs there needs to be a body that's as we said earlier that represents an america for all americans and um it kind of seems to me that that's the push that's going on here one is to recognize the the sovereignty of each individual nation within the hemisphere of the americas and to just get rid of the whole monroe doctrine uh, in practice and in in his, in the historical paradigm of the United yeah, States. I really do think that, that AMLO's decision to not attend if Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua are not invited is intimately linked with, it, with this issue of multipolarity. And it's also linked just to you know, international law and the principles of non-intervention and non-interference, right? Because the United which States- Which is a state, which is the chapter in the OAS charter too. Absolutely. A section. Absolutely. That, it's, not it's, to interfere. It's one of the founding principles of the OAS actually. <laughs> and yet yeah. the, the US constantly interferes. So, I mean, the United States has a responsibility to invite every country in the hemisphere to this summit. This isn't, getting an invite to the summit isn't a prize. It, it, it isn't something that is, you know, that, that people, that countries have to earn. It, it's every country has to be invited because these summits are meant to talk about regional hemispheric issues like say the pandemic or yeah. you know human or, or migration or jobs or the environment and how can you talk about these things if not all if all the actors aren't present right 
And the U.S. has, an, has a responsibility to invite them, just like the U U.S. as host of the United Nations has a responsibility to, to you know, accept every diplomat from every country in the United Nations. They don't always follow that, but you know, and they're much better at the UN than they are with the OAS and some of the Americas. And AMLO's decision is totally linked to multipolarity because that, I mean, I think the region has had enough of being bullied by the United States. They've had enough of, of this false rhetoric, of this weaponization of the terms democracy and human rights to really mean in practice it only what the US wants. Right, because it's not actual democracy or actual human rights that the United States wants. It's democracy and human rights according to a very narrow definition, if and only if it also serves U.S. interests. Yeah. So, I mean, I think yeah. the you know I think we've seen a massive change in the region in terms of how it relates to the United States, and AMLO is you know the, the next step in that in that change, and, and this push for multipolarity is going to be key. And, and that's that's going to be the only way that uh, these countries can preserve their sovereignty. The, the possibilities are very inspiring. Yeah. And to see it playing out on the diplomatic stage is really encouraging. I mean, that's leadership by example versus by gunpoint. And, and it's very, very inspiring and very very promising. Oh, that's right. And in a way, really, I think Biden's kind of dodging a bullet and if, if Ablo goes because I can almost guarantee that AMLO is more popular in LA than Biden <laughs> and that he would get many, many, many more people at his speeches than, than Biden would. That's for sure. That is most definitely true. So, so for our audience, let's remind them you can uh, protest Biden Summit of the Americas in LA by attending the People Summit, People Summit 2022.org. You can find out more information there. And also, please, let's get uh, the 23 Cuban civilians uh, to that summit in LA also. And you can find that code pink alert. I just, just tweeted it out to all of you, but let me let me pull it up again. Codepink.org slash, you know it, you wrote it. <laughs> Codepink.org slash Cubans banned. Yeah, I mean, it's so egregious because the U.S. always talks about representing Cuban civil society and looking out for the interests of all Cubans. And yet when you have this broad, you know, group of people that do represent every level of Cuban society, the U.S. says no, because you, we don't want to hear what you have to say. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's all very managed, just like the, the media, all of it very controlled. <laughs> so thank you, Leo. It's always so, it's always so great for you to join us as a guest and co-host oh, and friend. I, I love our conversations. So. Me too. So and best of luck in Colombia next week. Oh, that's true, folks. There. I will be leaving for Colombia uh, in several days. And uh, so you'll be seeing some WTF, at least uh, not full episodes, some video shorts from our, um, our electoral observation um, delegation there. So so thank you, everyone. I just uh, want to remind you, you've been watching What the F is going on uh, in Latin America and the Caribbean, Code Pink's weekly YouTube program of hot news out of the region. We broadcast weekly, generally on Wednesdays, 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, uh, and on occasion, uh, Thursdays or Fridays. And you can also find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Also be sure to catch Code Pink Radio every Thursday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern on WBAI out of New York City and WPFW 
out of Washington, D.C. That program also can be found on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So everyone, we'll see you next week. And um, thank you again, Leo. It was a terrific conversation and, and, and great to share some time with you. Anytime, Terry. Thank you. Okay, everyone. We'll see you next week.